respect to the people of the Woi Wurrung and Bun Wurrung language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nations on whose unceded lands the SIN office and studios stand. SIN Media respectfully acknowledges their ancestors and elders, past, present and emerging. SIN Media also acknowledges the traditional custodians and their ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia where our content reaches and on which SIN partner organisations stand. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello and welcome to Raise a Platform for this absolutely wonderful episode. And today we have the amazing Ruby, who is joining us today. Um, hello, Ruby. Hi, Amy. It's so great to be here. And um, Ruby is a really interesting person who has a lot of lived experience with disability and queerness. And this is going to be a really fun one today. So <laughs> um, Ruby identifies as a member of the bisexuality community. Yeah. Um, a lot of people think that bisexuality is exclusive to the binary of men and women. However, bisexuality is far more expansive than that. Yeah. How do you define bisexuality, Ruby? Well, I actually like to borrow from um, Robin Oakes, who's a bisexual advocate based in North America. And so uh, I define bisexuality as the potential to feel attraction to more than one gender, not necessarily at the same time, in the same way or to the same extent. But more than one gender is kind of the important part there, I guess. I think that um, there's, a, there's this really kind of common conception that bisexuality, because it's a duo, it has to be men and women. And in my lifetime, I've seen that kind of change again to be just cis men and women. I'm not sure where that one came from. But I think bi plus people, so bi plus is a term that we use to indicate the kind of bisexual umbrella to recognize there are a lot of different labels people use for multi-gender attraction. There's pansexual, omnisexual, or a few of the common ones. And I think it's important to recognize the distinctions. There's a lot of overlap, the distinctions are important for some people, but in bi plus community, there's been discussions of multiple genders beyond men and women uh, recorded since 1990. There was a bisexual magazine called Anything That Moves, which is a great name for a bisexual magazine. And that ran from 1990 till 2011. And in the very first issue, they discussed not assuming that there's only just two genders. So I think this idea that bisexuality is a binary enforcer is something that doesn't really match up with bisexual definitions of how we've talked about ourselves for a long time. Um, so what does being part of the Melbourne bisexual community mean to you? Oh, everything. So I think the Melbourne bisexual community is something that I have been a very active part of since I think 2016 when I started doing a show uh, called Triple Bypass about bisexuality and ended up being a co-founder for the Melbourne Bisexual Network and setting up a Facebook group called the BiPlus Community of Melbourne, which is for multi-gender attracted people in Melbourne. There's almost 3,000 people in that now. But what it means to me, I think, is I've been able to create a really solid idea of my bisexual identity, which means that a lot of the erasure and um, stereotypes that people can have around bisexuality don't impact me as much. If people are confused or people question my sexuality, I have enough connections and enough community that have really helped me feel very strong and centered and proud of my bisexuality, that it doesn't impact me the same way. And also I think it's helped me really be able to celebrate being bisexual and all the really wonderful things 
that I get to experience as a bisexual person. Um, so um, I've been the vice president of a number of things in the past, mm -hmm. and it is a very interesting, albeit very stressful job. Mm -hmm. So being the, the vice president of the um, Melbourne Bisexual Community mean to you? Oh, Melbourne Bisexual Network. Yeah, well, actually, just recently, I did become the president again. It was a bloodless coup, I swear. No, it was we had a little uh, election. It was all agreed on. But that was quite a recent change. But, and I've been the vice president twice now, and I've also been the president twice. Um, being the vice president, I think, is knowing how to support the person who's sitting as president often. It's checking in, it's being someone to bounce ideas off and being proactive in picking up whenever that person needs a break. Our, our organization is entirely volunteer and it's just a handful of people. So we can all go through different lapses of energy and burnout effectively or capacity loss. And it's much like a choir, you know, to keep a note going, everyone takes it in turns to take a breath. So the song, the note doesn't end. So I think the vice president, someone who starts singing when they see the president might need to take a breath. Does that match how you felt about it, Amy? I felt it um, was trying to keep the um, Mona Shakespeare company alive. Um, ah, yes. I got, I did infiltrate the Melbourne Shakespeare Company when I was a student at RMIT. How did you do that? I just rocked up and I was like, hey, can I do some Shakespeare with y'all? And they know it. And they never checked to see if I was actually a student. So I did two productions with them. And they never checked to see if you were actually a student. Yeah. So they, I think uh, after about the first production, I think they just liked having me around. <laughs> Actually, I think maybe Melbourne's pretty, they don't really care if you're a student or not, which is a bit weird. Monash does. Like, yeah, what's your student okay. number? And like, I don't have one. <laughs> I won't have I, one in about a year because um, I'm going to be Monashless. I guess I'm going to be forced out into the real world, having to, you know, be employed and realizing that, um, well, fun doesn't grow on trees. I think it's going to be a bit of uh, building our own structures. And I know like as an autistic person, that was something I've had to learn how to figure out once I finished up at uni. Um, but I, I will say I, my life, I enjoy my life a lot more now. Now I got stressed in year seven. I mean, I feel like I've been constantly stressed. So I hear you. I, um, uh, I got stressed in year 12. That's pretty normal. But um, I have my research proposal due next week. Mm -hmm. I'm presenting something. I'm doing my defending my thesis on Monday. On Tuesday, I'm graduating from undergrad. Mm -hmm. And a few other things sprinkled in there that are causing a bit of worry. And God knows what could happen. Right. So We're here now. I don't even know how I'm even still functioning on this sort of stress. I'm well, not going think... to show out by tomorrow night. Well, let's work on that right here. We got um, this. How would you ensure that the events for the um your events for the Melbourne Bisexual Network are inclusive of all disabled people? Um, we're quite fortunate that there's a number of us with disabilities in the network. So we do a lot of scoping. So generally, if we're going to hold physical events, we check out the locations in person. Um, my friend who is a is a mechanical wheelchair user will make sure that her chair can fit. And so we'll check that out. We also make sure that when we're advertising and when we're putting out promotions around the event, we have a really thorough breakdown of everything people can expect on the day. We do really clear signage. We mention what we can and can't do. And I think that's probably one of the more important things that I've tried to communicate with, with folks around this is that just being honest about what is available 
and what is not. So people can see that you've thought about it. So we actually had a very big, in our latest event last year in September, which was we had a bowls day at the bowls club because turns out bowls clubs are often really inclusive and accessible places. Um, so you can, they, we did a really big breakdown of what people could expect on the day, where there would be noise, where there wouldn't be noise, what the bathroom facilities would be like, which bathroom facilities would be um, uh, accessible, people using wheelchairs and mobility aids, which areas were going to be easier to access if you're using a wheelchair or mobility aid, what we could do in so far as keeping spaces that were quieter, what we could do in so far as people who might have vision impairment and what we could offer there. So we actually had a number of people there who uh, who were disabled or identified as disabled when they were contacting us. We also made sure that the food we had available, um, we had, people could let us know if they had any intolerances. And we also tried to provide for as many different kinds of, of food as we could, not just insofar as allergies, but also recognizing the importance of having food that's halal, having food that meets a lot of different um, dietary requirements based on people's religious beliefs as well. We provided a lot of information, I suppose, is how I'd say that. How do we ensure our events are inclusive? We check the guides that exist as well. There's a really great one that was developed by Drummond Street by, um, I think it's Advocacy at the Intersections, which, which Jacks Brown made a little while ago. We also just did some general searching. We looked at examples of best practice. So when we've gone to events that have been really disability inclusive, we figured out what they did well and what really worked. And we make sure we can do that. And we also bring in volunteers and make sure they understand how to best support everyone who comes in there and to not make assumptions about disabilities or not. Something we didn't do, which I actually really liked seeing in Sydney at the World Pride Conference, was they have like the, have you heard of the sunflower lanyards, Imi? I've got one. Yeah. Well, it's my first time seeing those at a conference and, and then again at the airport. So that was really interesting. I think that's something that we'd like to do in the future. That and also the, the coloured stickers that I've seen used uh, in some autism social spaces around indicating how open we are to conversations with people we don't know. So I think those are some things that we've kept growing and learning about. Um, this one's about, these questions are all about radio. So um, what was your experience working on Triple Bypass on Joy FM? I've got a lot of friends who work on Joy FM and they really find it to be a very enjoyable experience. I think it's a great radio station for answering yeah. Well, it's one of only three 24-hour LGBTIQ plus stations in the world. And it was originally set up to broadcast information around HIV and AIDS in the 90s. So it's, got, it's a pretty incredible place. I My experience working there, so I started actually working there doing news reading. So I wanted to get involved with community and I hadn't really had any kind of involvement. I think this is one of the things that's difficult sometimes about being bisexual is that it's hard to feel comfortable moving into community spaces and taking up a bit of space there. So when I joined Joy, it was still a gay and lesbian radio station, but they were looking for more bisexual people. So I ended up doing news reading and then became a current affairs reporter. And this was leading up to the postal survey uh, all those years ago. And then that led to they were going to do their first bisexual program. And I, they asked if I'd like to be in it because I was already known as being obnoxiously bisexual uh, in that I talked about it a lot. But I think uh, my experience working on the show, it was the first time I talked with bisexual people about bisexuality. It was an incredibly important experience that has had a huge impact on me as a person. It meant that I had a reason to start researching and looking into the history of bisexual plus people, uh, looking into research around our well-being and our his and what our mental health is like, and to kind of rebuff some of the myths that I'd been accepting 
that were, you know, the fact that bisexual people have it easier than gay and lesbian people, for example, when we don't. And my better understandings around other concepts to do with polyamory and, and chronic disability and disability justice and how to have an apology and what it's like to be a bisexual drag queen. I think my experience was that as an autistic person, I can find it very difficult to strike up conversation with people I don't know, particularly if we're in a big a crowded environment, there's a lot of people around. And so it meant that for years, if I found someone who I thought was really interesting, I could say, do you want to come onto my radio show? And then I'd have an hour to talk to this person about something that they were passionate about. And it was honestly the ideal way of socializing for me. So I think that was my experience. I also got to see the station get more and more actively inclusive. I think when I started in 2015, they were at the beginning uh, of recognizing they needed to move to a broader audience than just uh, the gay and lesbian communities. And that really has been something that's been such a pleasure to watch in my time there. And, and I'm still involved with, a, with, with Joy now. I just uh, don't do that show anymore because I, I did that for five years, which was, I think um, I needed a bit of a break after that. Um, so my is, next question are these is, answers interesting? Is this what you'd like to talk really about? really interesting and you're talking for a while, so it's using up a lot of time. Um, is that a good thing or a bad um, thing? I have a problem with a lot of these interviews. People just give one sentence answers and it's very annoying, but you're giving like a really good long talk and it's really interesting and <laughs> I really like that. So as somebody, who, okay, so as somebody like me who works in radio and loves working in radio and absolutely loves doing this every week, um, how can I assure that my work is inclusive? I mean, there's a few practical things. For example, I would like to see, and I'm not sure if Sin does this or not, I hope so, but transcripts of radio shows are very helpful for people as well. But I think probably the best thing we can do around inclusivity is to really make an effort to seek out different voices, to, yeah, um, to really uh, look for our body of work and see what might be missing there. And I think to use it as a platform where we can amplify people and recognize that often if we're running a show, right, our job is to make other people look really interesting and good. And I think so they can bring new ideas forward and new concepts forward and new perspectives forward. So I think to ensure your work is inclusive, it's just a matter of seeking out new voices and lifting them up and using your platform as best as you can, especially when there's particular things going on where pe particular people aren't getting much of a voice, especially when it's something that's about them, um, like the voice. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there to make sure that you're creating something that is both inclusive and really meaningful to a lot of different people. Do you find the number of organisations you engage with truly strive for inclusion on the intersection of queerness and disability? I think that the organisations I engage with, I think it depends. I think a lot of queer organisations are really striving. I think there is obviously still a lot of learning to do, and often that can be difficult because there aren't necessarily a lot of people with disabilities, people who are openly um, and freely feel comfortable to discuss their disabilities. But I, um, I do see it happening a lot more in queer spaces than and beginning to happen now in community spaces. I know councils are getting quite proactive in that space. But realistically, I think 
they are striving, but the concept of intersectionality in relation to disability is still something that I think is taking a bit of time. And as well as being autistic, I have ADHD, so I'm not the most patient of people. So that can be quite difficult uh, for me and for all of us, honestly, I think. But what I've also noticed is that there is this wonderful, beautiful wave of neurodiversity coming through the queer community. And as that comes, I do think there is a greater push for change. And what I'm hoping is that people, as they get to explore their neurodiversity and understand their own neurodivergence, will also be able to understand how that relates to the structural issues around disability justice beyond their own experiences. Because I do think that's how any change is made. Unfortunately, it is the truth that often people have to be introduced to a new concept to factor it in. And often people just haven't heard of these things. And I think people, when they know about the intersection of queerness and disability are keen to help, but often it's not something that they would have thought of or heard of until it's right in front of their faces. Often um, in my face or, you know, other people or your face or any people, those of us that come forward and let them know that this is an intersection that is incredibly important. And of course, as we know, there are some disabilities, including neurodivergent um, parts where we're much more likely to be queer. So I think that's also leading to a push in that space, which has been really beautiful to see. But I think everyone means well. It's just that sense of intention versus action, right? It's about they care about it, but they don't necessarily want to change that much. And so how do we then get that movement happening? And that's a lot of what my job is. And it's a, ironically, it does involve a lot of patience. Well, next question to all about your identities. So how do your queer and disabled identities intersect? Um, I think, well, I think there's it, often it's because, you know, I'm non-binary, I'm bisexual, I'm autistic and I have ADHD. And uh, I think those intersections are often about not really feeling like it's enough. So as a bisexual person, not really feeling queer enough, not feeling like I'm autistic enough or disabled enough to count myself as part of that community, not really feeling like I'm trans enough as a non-binary person. So I think the intersection has often been that my identities are on spectrums. My identities are a part of our fluid. And they're also spaces where there has been a level of isolation involved where there's a lot of pressure often to not make a big fuss. What I think is particularly special though is that the journey I had to go on with my bisexuality from shame to pride was one that I could then travel again when I was diagnosed as an autistic person. And I think it was really having built up a sense of queer pride that made it easier for me to build up a sense of disability pride because being queer and finding pride in yourself with those things does mean being able to unpack and recognize the importance in, of celebrating things that are different to the norm and of forging our own paths and of remaking what our futures can look like. And I think in a lot of ways, it's an incredible benefit to be disabled and queer because it does really mean that you're in a space where difference is the whole point. And I'm not sure how I would have managed to find disabled pride without having found queer pride first, honestly. Um, how do you feel pride as a queer disabled person? I think I feel 
pride at so for me pride is when I can transcend internalized phobia and I think that happens to me most when I am with people who who love and appreciate me and do that because of who I am not in spite of being bi and not fully queer or you know being autistic and being and going into goblin mode or perching or flapping my hands or or giggling or rocking yeah exactly yeah we're flapping our hands it's an audio medium so you can't tell that we're both flapping but um it's so I think I feel pride in also knowing what our history is and in knowing the work that all these incredible queer disabled people are doing in Australia but around the world to really bring our issues to the front and to make sure that our human rights are being recognized and that we are give we are finding ways to take up the space and and raise our voices and be heard in both queer spaces and disabled spaces and and every space because we exist everywhere and I think that the biggest part is I think when I see people when I see my community and I feel so much pride in in seeing people managing to despite often a lot of barriers and despite being told that we have we are, there are limits to what we can do and there are limits to our 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 ability there are limits to what our futures can be when I see people like me building whole new worlds for themselves and for each other and when I see us together and I feel the excitement and the euphoria we get when we're in a space where we all know we haven't got to justify or explain ourselves or defend ourselves I feel so much pride and it feels like this kind of wide warm feeling that makes me feel incredibly giddy and excited like I've just drunk a lot of red cordial um a question that I'm because um one of the things you mentioned before is that your job is actually in consulting and what, what was it in again I forgot so I'm an LGBTIQA plus inclusion advisor in community health so I do but I also do a lot of networking across the organization so and I think we've been talking before we started recording about that being something that people wouldn't naturally see an autistic person as being particularly gifted at, given that we're often considered to be lacking in charisma and, and really struggling to make connection. While my job has been successful because I'm able to make a lot of connections and make people um, and really connect with people on a one-to-one -one basis and help get them excited and passionate about what we're doing. And um, being a autistic person myself, hmm. I've been very much told that any jobs like headhunting, consulting, because basically what you in a way do is that you autistic people, autistic people are told that they will struggle to find work, struggle to um, really succeed in an able-bodied world and yeah. forced to essentially change or just don't even bother applying for positions but you're actually somebody who helps people get jobs in a way and yeah. that is something that um I feel is, and is completely pushing um, what society is telling autistic people that they can do or that they're allowed to do yeah absolutely I think um I mean I think there is a difficulty sometimes in finding work that fits for us. And I'm really happy that I found a workplace where my work style is understood. And it's understood that I'll get the job done, but the way I do it might not be what they're used to. Because autistic people are very effective problem solvers. We're, we, I think 
I was reading a study that we can solve, like on average, like we can solve issues about 40% faster than non-autistic people. So we're very good at finding solutions and inclusion and diversity are areas where there are problems to solve. And we, the way that I approach problems is quite different. And so I think something that I found was that I had had to really learn how to connect with people because it wasn't a natural thing for me. I think like a lot of us, I grew up really isolated. I was, I dealt with a lot of bullying at school. I, I, I had incredibly low self-esteem and I didn't really much have much of an understanding of who I was as a person. And I think queer spaces are how I built that up in myself and doing advocacy and meeting other incredible advocates who also were autistic, because I think we do tend to find each other in those spaces. And I think that was what helped me. I think the other thing that I've had to really work on is having boundaries around my work because it's very, you know, one of the things that I think is really beautiful about the autistic experience is our very strong sense of, of justice, of right and wrong, you know, um, of being motivated to fix something because it's wrong and it's unfair and that can't be allowed to stand, even if it doesn't necessarily affect me. And this is something we've seen again through research. Autistic people really are passionate about justice in that sense. So finding work that allowed me to be motivated that way. It's about finding what motivates us. The issue with a lot of recruitment work, which I did look into briefly, is that it's financially motivated. And I once didn't get a job and the feedback was that I was not financially motivated enough, which is right. Money, money is like important to live on, but it is not what I'm doing a job to find. And it's not what will help me do better at my job to have more money dangled in front of me. So I think it's recognizing that workplaces are starting to recognize the skills that we bring in, but also we have to be able to trust ourselves and be able to communicate what we need in a workplace too. And that takes a bit of time and a bit of reading and research to really figure out how to make our workplaces accessible for us. Because often they, when we go into a new workplace, people don't know what, we, what it is that we need. And so that can be a bit of extra work that we have to do at the moment until we do reach a place where workplaces have that built in, which I think, you know, some are moving towards in a really good rate, some are not. But I think when we know what we need to work well, we are very well positioned to go into a workspace and to find out if their values will actually match what we need and to and if they'll be able to provide what we need to thrive. Yeah. Um, another important part of um, my identities was happening to me on Tuesday. I'm graduating from the undergraduate part of my degree. Congratulations. That is a very, very big thing for me because as a child, I experienced a lot of bullying in school. I was told I would almost never have any success in finding employment. I was told that the only place I'll ever get employment would be some sort of, you know, just if somebody gave me like a little odd job to do, um, I wouldn't ever be expected to earn any money. And guess what? I'm graduating away from my university bachelor of arts. I get major in theater, theater and major in history and a minor in German. So mm -hmm. I'm treating this like some people would treat their wedding because for me, that's how big of a day this is. Of course. It's going to be, I have succeeded in the able-bodied world. And when disabled people go all out with their graduations, that is because we have been told that this is a world that is never going to be for us. And we want to show the world that um, we can be there and, no, no one's going to stop us. So I'm going to treat this as big as my as as is a wedding, in my opinion. And I next think that's year, wonderful. Honors, it'll be even bigger. And uh, if I go further than that, it'll be even bigger. And um, I'm and yeah, it's it's going to be a very big, 
a very big event um, for me particularly. So we're going to have um, a lot of um, parts of this graduation that are people will probably more associate with um, weddings and things like that. So um, when I walk up there, it's really going to be, um, um, this is something I've worked for for many years. Um, as soon as I was told as a child that I would never succeed in the able-bodied world, I always put out there that I would always um, try harder, try better, always. And I feel sometimes that I feel I have to succeed more. I feel also I feel that I have to show people that I prove people that I can do things. I think we do. And I, but I think this is something that a lot of people who experience marginalization deal with. It's the what work twice as hard for half of the half of the respect. And I think it's um it is that sense because people have expectations and so it takes twice as much work to prove them wrong because we have to. But I think I, I want to firstly say that's really awesome, Amy. I, I'm really excited. I hope you have a wonderful time at your graduation. But I guess um something that I've had to work on, and this of course comes with it's different every person, but um I think it's recognizing that when we keep repeating those messages of what we've been told when we were younger, it can make it harder to, like it's important to acknowledge that we've overcome these things. But I think those voices, if we keep repeating them, are harder for them to fade to the background. And I have a really strong inner critic because I also heard a lot of negative things growing up. And um, and I guess I, I just want to acknowledge that you've done all those things and you've proven them wrong, but you didn't do it for them. You did it for you. I did. And, but I feel that a lot of my life is proving to people that I can be better than what they think, what they ever thought I could be. And I feel that by walking up there, um, you know, what's going to be going through my head is really just all of the things that happened to me as, you know, things that were told to me and, things that I've had to really grapple with is going to be echoing back. Like I still get flashbacks when I was a child being told I would never be anything um, being, you know, experiences in school that um, mm -hmm. were very upsetting. And I feel that this moment is like, that never happened to me. And now, now it's a celebration, right? Because like you mentioned, like, you know, you got an HD on your lot, like on one of your assignments recently, like it's about recognizing that, we have now you've been very successful and it's not looking at the words that go with that success not with the not just the words that you heard in the past so it's about reading that feedback you get on your assignments and being like that's right I'm brilliant I did this like I I've I've done this and I'm brilliant and that is why I'm being celebrated right now and who and the per and like how I've been treated in the past has been incredibly harmful for me but they were wrong and this isn't about them and they don't deserve to take up any more of your time. And I feel that by um, doing this, um, I feel that I'm giving every other disabled person a chance to do it as well. And I feel that by going out there and saying that every other disabled person feels that they can do it as well. And Absolutely. I definitely feel that a lot of the things I do are not for me, but for other people just to prove to them I can do it. And I've had to do stop some stuff for you too, though. You know, you got to do some stuff for you too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, but I just think I'm doing things I'm interested in or choosing careers that I want to do just because I want to prove people that I can do it. And a lot of ah, that. Yes. Yes. Really so I hear you. I'm just going to jump in here because this is something that I think I had to grapple with a lot as well is that it's doing things because we like, 
because of other people as opposed to and then it makes it because often it's hard for us to figure out what we want so I think that is something that now you've got some space and time to think about right like what are the things that you've liked about your course what are the things that you do want to do and I think finding a way to have those conversations with yourself or with somebody else where you can create a really firm line between what you're thinking and what other people might think and being able to name that but I think again this is a huge it's a shift right and changes really can be really intimidating for us but I think we've I think you're gonna have a brilliant time. I heard about the chocolate cake and I'm quite jealous. I heard about the champagne. I'm also very jealous. So I hope you have a really, really beautiful time with uh, with your graduation and that you really get to be in the moment and to celebrate everything that you've achieved and that that's the voice you're listening to. And yes, and the other things happening at the graduation and also next year's honors graduation that I'm, I'm not spoiling for anyone because mm -hmm. They are things that are going to be very special. And Fantastic. it really is just to prove, uh, you know, it really is just me. I'm having my day. I don't need other people to tell me what job I can get, what I can do. And it's up to me now. And I feel that your graduation is more important than your wedding, particularly for women and other and other groups that um, have faced marginalisation, because this is your turn to say my life, my body, my choice. Um, I'm mm -hmm. going to choose my job. I'm going to earn my money. And then I don't have to get presents. I don't have to get um, things given to me. I can go out and buy whatever I want. I don't have to get my graduation shoes bought for my parents. I can go Yeah, and... but look, it's nice to get gifts. I can buy nice. all the Louboutins I want. Yes, uh, very good. Get those red soles. Beautiful. Yes. I can't stand heels personally because I have big feet. And so it's just a whole thing. They look a bit like clown shoes. But Imi, it's been such a delight to chat with you. Yeah. We've been talking and organizing for a very long time, but it's wonderful that we're now getting these platforms to really amplify. And I think you've been doing an incredible job of running the show since 2019. So thank you so much for all that you've been doing to bring our voices up and to, to give us a platform. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's been so much fun. I've had a really good break from... Um a lot of the um, stresses in my life and the pre-wedding jitters or the pre-graduation jitters. 